Hey guys, welcome back to the Off Cooldown Podcast. I'm Cal with Q and Newt. Say hi guys. Hello. Hey. So today we'll be discussing difficulty in video games. First off, what difficulty do you play your single player games on and why? So I guess I'll start. I play on normal difficulty because I wanna quote-unquote experience it the way the devs wanted me to experience their game. And usually... I don't know if it's a pride thing. I don't usually like playing on easy the first time, but I also don't really find the time to play again on hard. So, yeah. How about you guys? Uh, I tend to play games on normal difficulty, but if it's a genre or a franchise that I'm familiar with, I'll usually like to kick it up a notch and try the hardest difficulty, though I will definitely tone it down in times when I feel like I'm getting frustrated or I have difficulty with a certain level. Like, if I'm if I'm at the highest difficulty and I find that it's too difficult, I'll probably step down a notch and then I won't come back to that until I feel really confident with my mechanic, uh, with my mechanics on the game. Well, for me, I like playing in easy mode mostly because I want to treat my games as a source of, you know, euphoria and I want to get my highs as fast as pas- possible when I play my games. Mostly because I'm busy nowadays. Um, I only have short time uh, every day to play my games and I would like to make quote-unquote the most out of the time I use playing video games. But uh, when I really like a game and I finish it once on easy, I go straight to the hardest difficulty on my next run. So. For those who were watching my streams, you would know that I finished Resident Evil Village. And I'm still in the first two dungeons. Well, not dungeons. I'm still... I just finished Castle Dimitrescu on uh, the hardest difficulty. The the Village of Shadows difficulty. And I've been stuck ever since. So this is just a short update. But yeah, I do play in harder difficulties on games that I really like. But for the most part, I just play on easy mode. Mm. Cool. Okay, so one game we can never escape when it comes to discussions on difficulty are Soulsborne and Souls-like games. So I guess with the most experience in this genre is Q, so talk us through it. Okay, so the Souls-like genre as it's called kind of came about from, well, I guess the name came from Demon Souls, but I think it was the Dark Souls franchise that uh, really popularized it. And it's really known for really really challenging and really punishing gameplay where small mistakes would lead to your death and uh because the checkpoints are so far away they appear as bonfires in the game you tend to having to do the same difficult content over and over and over and over again and part of what sells it to a lot of people is the fact that it's very difficult it's very punishing and that you will spend a lot of time just dying repeatedly um i actually feel like there's some kind of parallel from these types of games to the you know, the rage games of yore, like the Flash-type rage games and all. And, you know, uh, the genre has become really, really popular that we're even seeing a lot of offshoots of it. Like, the roguelike and the roguelite genres are by no means uh, born from the Soulsborne-type uh, genre, because those were basically what games were, what really retro games were like before we started introducing the concepts of actually being able to save your progress in games. Like, really, really old games like Mario is a roguelike if you think about it. Contra is a roguelike if you think about it. But in, in recent years, a lot of uh, people have been meshing these two genres, and I think, you know, they, they, they sort of like these repetitive and punishing uh, experiences because they feel like it really helps them develop mechanical skill when it comes to that sort of game. And there's always been a hot topic of debate 
on the difficulty of games and uh, a lot of it has been centered around Soulsborne games because you know they're really really popular like um, for the longest time people have been asking for some kind of assist mode or a different difficulty in you know Soulsborne type games so that people who aren't you know who uh, aren't able to play the games at their normal difficulty level the current difficulty level uh, will be able to have you know, it will be able to experience the game in its entirety and not just have to watch playthroughs or maybe read condensed videos about the lore. So what are you guys' thoughts on this? Like, why do you think people, there's this always this raging debate between people who want to add difficulty options to these kinds of games and why there are so many people against it? Well, I, I think there's been like a badge of honor when it comes to being able to conquer these kinds of games that uh, there have been people who are gatekeeping the status or like gatekeeping this game as like it's difficult and only people who experience it in its most difficult form just like how the devs uh, intended it to be are the ones who actually played the game and if you played the game with mods to make it easier or anything like that they're gonna say that you didn't actually play the game uh, it stems down to their to them placing their pride and I think their identity somewhat on finishing a hard game like Dark Souls and they wouldn't accept that uh, people could play the game in, in, in easier modes just so that they could experience like the story or or the, the ambience of the game for the heck of it without getting to experience the difficulty of the game. And there's this one um, journalist that I can remember, I'm not sure, I think it was Sekiro that he was playing that he wrote an article about how he used a mod or he cheated his way into finishing the game and his argument was that oh I used the cheat to finish Sekiro Shadows twice and that's okay and he got really trashed by the community about it. There's a long-running meme uh, about a tweet that replied to his article which is like it, it goes somewhere like oh you just cheated yourself uh something like that i'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that but yeah a lot of people have been placing a lot of emphasis on the difficulty of dark souls and they don't like it when people play it in kind of like easy mode and they've been really adamant in uh, allowing devs or allowing people to ask for an easy mode or at least having sliders or difficulty levels for games like this like they think it's only a good Dark Souls game or Souls-like game if it's difficult as it is. And uh, as somebody who's played the the trilogy, the original trilogy of Dark Souls and Sekiro, uh, a lot of times, for in the case of Dark Souls 3 and Dark Souls 1, I agree with some points that you have to say, but I also agree with some points that they say. Because I feel like, uh, in, in sort of a, like a meta-narrative sense, there is so much experience. There's there's so much that the Dark Souls experience really boils down to the challenge and the feeling of triumph that you get for completing a difficult challenge. But at the same time, I definitely believe that uh, what one player considers challenging might be easy for another, or what one considers easy might be challenging for another. So I feel like there's nothing wrong with you know being able to modify your experience in a way that, so that it becomes just challenging enough for you this so it's to the point that you enjoy it or that you're getting a good experience out of it because uh is there really a point to uh you know playing these games or will you really come out having a positive experience if you're only uh like if you've, all the time you spend in the game is just you dying repeatedly and not having any fun and just being frustrated breaking controllers and all that like i it seems like the the 
the emphasis that people place because of you know maybe that maybe this pride or maybe uh, it is ego like you mentioned that uh, the emphasis that they place on other people having to earn their way to completing a game like that without realizing that difficulty is such a relative thing yeah I definitely agree uh, personally I'm on the pro difficulty setting side if we have to take sides because uh, I feel like I'm like for me I've tried to get into Sekiro I've played a little bit of Dark Souls 3 but I don't have the time or patience to like keep dying and trying again so most of my experience is just watching my brother play so I feel like there's so much like narrative and world building here that's really interesting to delve into but I personally can't experience it because I can't like actually go through the game the way it you're supposed to you're expected to so i wish there was a way to do that but eh, currently there isn't so i wish it was more accessible at least the story and world building parts but i don't know i don't know because the community is also very adamant against it actually i'm glad that you brought that up i think that accessibility goes hand in hand with the discussion on difficulty because you know like i mentioned earlier because one thing that's challenging for one person might be easy for another there are a lot of other factors that could be that that could you know play into that we have to consider like uh persons with disabilities who are physically incapable of doing some of the button inputs that you might need to play certain games like is it I feel like it's only fair that we allow them the opportunity, that we give them the opportunity to actually play these games and experience it for themselves and not be barred by the fact that, you know, some games are too inherently, quote unquote, uh, difficult or that these games inherently require you to have faster and more complex button inputs when they could be simplified in a way that just makes the game accessible to a lot of other, to a lot of other people that normally wouldn't be able to play them. And on the side of the community where they're very adamant about protecting you know their their her uh my you know the get good mentality and all that they don't have to use any of the accessibility options but it's important that we give people difficulty options that we give people accessibility options so that they'll be able to experience the game and it doesn't take away anything from the people who won't use them right yeah although i i i, I do agree that uh on the player side we sh- developers should consider um, putting up accessibility um, as part of their game design, like having that in mind, uh, how they can make sure that a whole range of players can enjoy the game without sacrificing the quality or the vision that they have for the game. And coming from the developer side, I also understand the need or the the want of the developers to make the players experience the game that they want them to experience which is why i understand why from software wouldn't add um difficulty settings for dark souls um i think part of the dark souls identity already or part of its dna is its difficulty and the developers really want it to be that way and as players i think we still have to respect that because that's their vision for the game but it doesn't always have to be clashing Sometimes you can give way and make both sides win. I would like to commend Red Hook Studios who developed um, Darkest Dungeon because they had a certain vision of how they want to make the game and they really wanted to make it difficult so that every moment in the game is suspenseful and it's going to be, it's, it's, go, it's meant to make you think twice about every move you make. And they, 
incorporated this feature or this mechanic in the game wherein when you beat an opponent uh there's a corpse that will be left behind that will make it difficult for you to target other enemies so the the the, the design and the vision of the developers is to make it so that even if you beat some enemies it's still hard to get to the back lines of the enemy party and it's going to make it difficult for you and going to um, shape up the strategy that you will be having going into each fight but the community didn't like that feature so much they did like that mechanic so much that they think it's bad game design and have urged the developers to actually remove that mechanic from the game and eventually retwork studios did at least give a chance for some of the players to remove that mechanic from the game so they put the they put in the settings an option to toggle on and off that mechanic so that if you want to experience the game as how the devs would want it you have the choice to do that or if you want to play the game without that pesky mechanic that very um, divisive mechanic you can do so as well so you, there's a win-win situation here where you can give the players what they want and still fulfill your vision on how you want players to experience the game at least put an option there yeah, similarly, um, in another game <clears throat> that came out recently, Hades, uh, which we critical acclaim because of its you know story and just the overall gameplay loop of it, it's quite a difficult game for some. I found it actually quite difficult. I, I cleared it one, I cleared it a couple of times, but then it was like another 20, 30 odd runs before I saw another clear. And they give you the option for God mode, right? Uh, the one where after every death, you start to gain a damage resistance that would stack after every death, and you can toggle it on and off in the options menu. So you can play the game as it was intended to be played but if you're having trouble if you're having difficulty with it especially if you want to progress the story because to actually finish the entire story of the game you have to get 10 clears i think it's 10 clears um which you know it can be kind of difficult to do and kind of a daunting task i'm glad that they included you know that assist option and uh the same thing goes for a game uh, if you've ever heard of the indie hit celeste the platformer they also have an assist mode in celeste to help you out with one of the more with some of the more complex button inputs for people who wouldn't be able to or are not used to or are physically incapable of uh, performing such complex button inputs. So I don't see why we shouldn't have those options and even in games that are supposed to be difficult because Celeste, Hades, Darkest Dungeon, these experiences are all meant to be difficult. Exactly. I feel like more options is like, just gives us, you know, more ways to play. More people can also play these games. So when it comes to options, uh, one thing we can't discount from the discussion is, of course, difficulty settings. So I'll start by commending one game. Uh, recently, well, it's not that recent anymore, but the, the first time I saw a difficulty setting that wasn't just uh, easy, normal, or difficult in general was Tomb Raider, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, so the latest of the Tomb Raider reboot. Uh, it had a different difficulty setting for combat, which is like the shooting, and then stealth, and then puzzles so you can set those three difficulties independently of each other so if you set puzzles to easier the prompts and the the puzzle elements will be easier to see and it's also a little more obvious to you know to help you out in solving the puzzles and then of course combat is you know the health and the damage of your guns how accurate the enemies are and then stealth is how easy it'll be for the enemies to you know see you so in that line of thought i think q has a game that goes even deeper when it comes to customizing difficult 
Yeah, so you know how in your average game, uh, your difficulty settings would be like, you'd have like easy, normal, hard, very hard, and then some lunatic extreme difficulty at the end. And uh, it would usually just determine things like enemies' HP or uh, how smart the AI is or like uh, how much HP, how much damage your character takes or, uh, you know, things that are mostly numerical changes to a lot of the things in the game. Uh, Dishonored has, Dishonored 2 has one of the most complex and customizable difficulty settings I've ever seen in a game. It has an entire settings page dedicated to it with more than, I think, more than 20 options on it. It allows you to change your save model, um, whether you're allowed to quick save at any time, whether you have a limited number of quick saves per game file, or whether you're, you're never allowed to quick save and the game will just save automatically at specific points for you. Uh, it has things for um, whether or not time slows down when you're accessing your weapon and powers wheel. You can change your enemy's perception. It's a stealth game, so you can change how fast uh, enemies can see you, how long they're alerted to you, whether or not they look up or how good their vertical perception is. It even let you change things like whether when you're leaning left and right to peek over cover, uh, whether or not the, the enemies will be able to detect you while you're leaning or whether or not leaning is just has you behind that cover anyway. They let you change things like uh, your footstep sound, how loud it is, uh, how perceptive your enemies are to broken objects, uh, how much ammo spawns around the world. Uh, how quickly enemies panic in the face of seeing supernatural things. It's because uh, your character has supernatural powers, but you're usually against regular people, and sometimes they panic when you use your powers. You can even change that in the settings menu to see uh, how brave... They, they call it enemy bravery. Um, you can change the ranged accuracy of your enemies, how quickly they attack, whether or not they attack in groups or just one by one. Like, I have never seen a difficulty settings menu this complex before, and I think it really lets you tailor the game to you know, be played the way that you want it to be. It doesn't matter if you're new to stealth games, if you just want to play it for the story, which you should because it's good, or if you really want to have like a really crushingly difficult stealth experience, or you know, maybe even like a semi, uh, you know, more of old style where you're not really allowed to save, and the game decides when you can save, and the checkpointing system might be far apart if you're playing on the ver if you're playing on Iron Man mode. So yeah, I, I feel like. These options should be available in more games. I, I don't know how difficult it might be to implement for some different genres, especially because I, I imagine that coding different levels of AI smartness or uh, that sort of thing with the level of complexity that Dishonored 2 has, it might be a little bit difficult. But it also feels like it's a really good step, if not a necessary step in some cases, to let more people have access to and be able to experience your games the way you intended them to be played. Okay, I'm just gonna bat butt in and um, talk about another game that has some similar features that I just remembered now that you talked about Dishonored. Um, you can toggle a lot of things as well in this game and it's kind of different because we were talking about action games, skill-based. Um, well, uh, they are hand and eye coordination and dexterity based mostly when it comes to its to their difficulties but sometimes difficulty also come in the form of in 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 the form of uh strategizing and managing your resources and uh, one game that comes to mind is the strategy game crusader kings and every start of game or campaign that you have there you can actually toggle a lot of different mechanics you can turn on or off um historical invasions of the mongols because you know um ck3 is a uh, European medieval fan, well, not fantasy, European middle simulation 
um sorry european medieval simulation where you get to play as a kingdom of europe uh during the middle ages and of course part of the historical accuracy in the game is that mongols will invade sooner or later and if you're playing from the eastern side of europe you'd find it difficult to resist this mongol horde but you can actually turn it off this feature off uh, if you want so that the mongols will never appear but doing so or disabling a lot of different features or disabling some features from the game will turn off iron man mode in the game and it's going to disable uh getting achievements in steam at the very least so i think that's a good balance as well if you're the kind of person who really wants to experience the game as the devs intend them to be and most likely you're also after the achievements so that you can show off uh your exploits in the game um probably that's a good um that's a good compromise that you can still let others experience the game the way they want to uh, they can play it as a power fantasy you're very strong noble with uh, no other kingdoms can uh, go against you if you want you can turn off all of the other mechanics so that you can make it so in that way but if you remove them then you won't be able to get the achievements and i think that's a good compromise for for uh, changing up the difficulties in games yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of different ways that you can approach it, that developers can approach it um, in making games playable for more people. Like, I feel like overall it would just do better for all of us if we just had more access for more people, especially for people who, uh, you know, it would encourage people to explore outside of their normal comfortable boundaries when it comes to genres and whatnot. Now, we can't really talk about difficulty without talking about one of it's a pretty heated topic when it comes to game development and uh the way that people perceive certain sections in games have you guys ever heard of artificial difficulty like to you what is that well to me personally i feel like artificial difficulty is when a game just suddenly changes the gameplay or like forces me into playing some other way that wasn't the way i was supposedly playing before and then it's like more tedious than usual stuff like that well there's a lot of different definitions and i guess a bit of a debate on uh you know artificial difficulty and what it is some people call it fake difficulty uh personally i'll define it in there's a couple of facets that i think uh well we, we discussed earlier amongst ourselves <laughs> that there's a couple of facets that we would define artificial uh, artificial difficulty as the first one would be like what cal said there would be like railroaded sections where a lot so much control is taken away from the player uh where it feels like our actions don't really determine uh you know they don't really determine the course of the game i mean it's possible that you know you could build that into the narrative and the theme of the game and it's, that's it, that it's intentional but Sometimes it can be done wrong and it can feel like artificial difficulty because, you know, this isn't the game that you signed up to play and that's what it ends up being for like an hour and a half of your life that you can't get back. Um, we, we also added the, the idea of forced control schemes where, uh, you know, sometimes to gimmick as a gimmick for new hardware, looking at you, Wii U, uh, they like to add a bunch of new controls or new gimmicks on the way that you'd have to approach uh, normal things that we would normally do with your average controller or with your average mouse and keyboard. Sometimes it works, sometimes it really doesn't. And being forced into that situation can just 
take away the power from you as a player. Another thing that we identified was bad technical aspects. Have you ever played a game where it's not a platformer, but they have platforming sections and they are awful because the movement doesn't feel good, because the movement doesn't feel precise. So, you know, that, that's another thing that we can consider fake or artificial difficulty. And the last one is game time padding. And uh, this one, in a way, it's a form of difficulty or a form of, like, it, it becomes a bit of an issue of accessibility because game time padding often adds a whole bunch of, you know, time to the game that isn't necessary, doesn't add anything to experience, to the experience. And also, you know, it wastes your time, which is something that not a lot of people have a lot of. So we're going to go a little bit more into detail on each of these things, starting with uh, forced control schemes. And uh, I want to start with this one, with something that I've had a lot of experience with personally. And uh, that game is Super Mario Odyssey on the Nintendo Switch. It's a great game. I really, really enjoyed it. It reminds me of the platformers that I played as a kid, but... There are some things in the game, well, specifically the game's motion controls, I am really, really not a big fan of. If, if you guys tried, uh, Mute, I think you've played, have you played Mario Odyssey? Yeah, I played it, but I don't own the game. Don't tell the owner that they still have it. Anyway, yeah, I played the game. <laughs> and, you know, the game is a lot of fun and, uh, you know, traversing the maps is a lot of fun and you can do so using just the basic moveset. But if you, like, you watch a whole bunch of people online and they're doing all of these really interesting and complex movements to get to places faster or to get to places that you normally couldn't get to without using the motion control moveset. Uh, it bothers me because I personally played on a Switch Lite and one of the moves, just one of the first ones that they teach you actually, is one where after you toss out your hat, you can have it spin around you to attack monsters and collect coins, but you have to shake your Joy-Cons. And in my case, I have to shake my entire Switch. You know how hard it is to look at a 5.5 inch screen and try to focus on the small details happening on it while you're shaking it vigorously in your hands? It's really, really difficult and I hate the fact that that's the only way it's implemented. There is no other analog input that I'll be able to do to replicate that same movement. I have to use the motion controls. You can finish the entire game, collect every single one of the collectibles without using any of these advanced motion control stuff, but I still feel like I'm missing out because I want to use them, but I can't because it's just too difficult to do so on my console because it's a Switch Lite. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so actually, I think that's also part of the te technical difficulties of um, of Super Mario Odyssey, although we have more examples for technical difficulties later. But for this particular one, I think it's because Super Mario Odyssey was developed with just the Nintendo Switch in mind and then the Nintendo Switch Lite came along later and they just had to come up with a with a way to make the game still playable with the Switch Lite and I think the solution they had in mind is what caused these problems for when Key was playing the game you had to shake the Switch Lite you know how ridiculous that is that's so jarring or it's 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 going to really ruin the game for you and the other thing is that there, there were already options in the options menu uh, built in for you to turn off the motion controls, but they don't offer you any alternative. So you can turn off the motion controls and just lose access to this entire repertoire of movement skills. And they don't give you any other options for actually making use of them. Like I figured that I thought at first that, you know, if I can turn off the motion controls, they must give me an alternative, right? Wrong. They don't. And it's so strange, but 
sometimes these sort of uh, what we would consider kind of wacky control schemes could actually add to an experience strangely and uh, I haven't played personally but Newt has an example for us and that's the first Resident Evil game yeah, the first Resident Evil game, actually a couple of the Resident Evil games had what you call the tank controls, which is very infamous and actually very divisive in the com- uh, in the community. There's There are people in the community who didn't like tank controls, but there are people who actually liked it. I'm on the camp of liking it purely because I understand why it's there. Um, way back then, I don't think that uh, the games back then can handle all so many action on uh, on the screen at a time and that's also part of the technical limitations of the game during that time but Capcom was able to make it work because the game was a survival horror game and implementing tank controls for a game like that actually adds to the vibe of the game it makes it scarier and it makes it uh gives more tension the game because when you're running away from zombies especially from the zombie dogs you can't just mash a button or like uh press one button and run away from these dogs because uh, the way tank control works, you can't move and change direction at the same time. If you want to change the direction that your player or your character will be going, you will have to stop and then turn, make the character turn. So it takes up time. You'll have to strategize how you're going to approach opponents. And you will have the time when you're shooting at opponents. Because if you shoot long enough and you don't save time for you turning away from the from the zombies and running away you'll end up getting attacked by the enemies by the zombies and it adds to the feel of the game so yeah sometimes these uh enforced control schemes do make it hard for the players and make them uncomfortable playing the game but it's not always a bad thing and we're gonna be talking about these um artificial difficulties that we are that we mentioned earlier and show you examples of both good implementations and bad implementations and another one of these artificial difficulties that you mentioned earlier is railroaded sections and cal actually has a very good example for this one that she's gonna be sharing to us okay so my biggest example for railroad sections is infamously Red Dead Redemption and Red Dead Redemption 2. So I feel like this has been carried over like as a staple Rockstar thing with their games. Uh, all the main missions have a precise way that you have to play them in order to accomplish the mission. I remember one mission where I, sp- I was supposed to like steal a cart or... Uh, yeah, I think it was a cart. So I had to specifically go in and then kill everyone inside the place and then steal the cart. So I didn't know that you had to like kill everyone there. And then, so what I tried to do was like steal the cart and then run away. <laughs> but it didn't let me do that. So I like immediately failed the mission and then I had to do it again. So it just feels really jarring in an open world game for them to railroad you like that because. Like, it's all about freedom and then not, like, going off the beaten path and getting distracted by side quests. And then when you get into the missions, you actually aren't free to do what you want. You have to, like, specifically follow the little instruction at the bottom of the screen to play. So that's just quite weird and, like, really 
it like really gets you off the game. Right, so a little bit more on that because I I haven't played much Red Dead Redemption Two. I only played the intro, basically. Just I finished what would be the tutorial of the game, and I, I'm actually kind of surprised to hear that. Do you think it has something to do with the fact that uh, they they really want to railroad you into playing the character of Arthur Morgan? Like they they'd be like, oh, because you're Arthur, this is what he would do, and now you have to do that. And uh, do you think it's it's something to do with that, or? I feel like it's partly that, but it's mostly gameplay limitations like i feel like some cutscenes or like narrative cues are tied to having something specific happen in game so the cutscene won't trigger if you don't arrive at this point through this method so i feel like that's more of a technical limitation than a narrative one because like there's a slight spoilers but there's a mission in the like near the end of the game that makes you like Arthur's already in his redemption arc and he's like questioning his morals and stuff. But suddenly it makes you want to, sh- like, your goal is to uh, help someone escape. And then suddenly you're shooting out an entire town and you have no choice but to kill everyone in town to escape. So I'm like, wait, why did Arthur do that? I, like, I feel like Arthur wouldn't want to do that right now. So, like, it- I feel like it really is more of a technical thing than a narrative thing when it comes to Red Dead at least. Ah, yeah, so that definitely does sound that way. It's, it's definitely a, such a weird experience to have, considering that, you know, when you're in the open world, you're kind of free to do whatever you want, like you mentioned earlier. And it's like, all of a sudden, you're railroaded into these into these different sections. It kind of yeah. reminds me of... Uh, there's this one segment in, in, you know, Nintendo's Breath of the Wild. I, I love the game. I absolutely love the game. But and it's, it's a game about exploration. It's a game about freedom. There's barely any narrative, right? You wake up a hundred years later, same thing. Zelda's been captured, got to save her from Ganon, it'll stop the end of the world, and then that's it. You're thrown into the open world. If you wanted to, you could go straight to the final boss, and people have done that, and people have finished the game like that, or you could go around and explore. But there's this one segment. Uh, one of the clans that is out to get Link in Breath of the Wild is the Yiga clan, and uh, they're like this clan of they're kind of like ninjas and samurais at the same time, I guess, but they're also thieves. And uh, you're when you get to their hideout, before you go out there and you fight the, the, their, their, their leader, there's a segment where you are forced into playing a stealth section. And uh, some cases it could be okay to have that kind of break in gameplay, um, you know, to suddenly remove, like to, to flip the entire thing on its head where suddenly you're, you, you're forced to do a certain thing that the game isn't normally known for. But this is not one of the situations where it was done right. Because they suddenly take away Link's ability to use his powers and his ability to fight. Because the moment you're spotted, you just have to start the segment over over again. And it's it's so weird that that's how it is. You can't even... there's uh, If I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've played, but you can't even climb the boxes. So there's it basically is a bunch of patrolling guards, and then there's a bunch of boxes, and then you just have to kind of walk around them, wait for them to patrol past you, and then walk past them. Can't make too much noise, can't get spotted, because then you have to spot it, you have to start it all over again. And it's just really, really jarring that a game about combat and freedom and being able to use all of these sandbox abilities to great effect creatively just suddenly funnels you into having to do this really boring stealth section that has nothing to do with the main gameplay loop and isn't even a lot of fun by itself. And in contrast to that, also in the same game, they have this thing called uh, Eventide Island. And I, I think Newt would do a better job of explaining what Eventide is like. Yeah, so like there's a difference between Eventide and the Yiga clan hideout. One significant 
difference is that uh, the Yiga clan hideout, you know, deviation of sorts from the gameplay is kind of required for you to progress. You know, I, I, I do understand that uh, right off the bat, you can go straight to the castle and beat Ganon if you wanted to. But what I mean here is if you wanted to go through the main story quest lines, you will have to go through the Siga clan base and you'll have to um, get through that stealth action uh, deviation of sorts from the gameplay loop, which doesn't really make sense given that Link is powerful and he can kick the ass of all of these ninja clan warriors. So it... it um, deviations from the gameplay like that that doesn't really make sense in the context of the world uh, it's, it's for in our opinion bad game design but the difference it has in Eventide Island is that Eventide Island is completely optional you want to go you, you will just go there if you want some extra challenge and actually going there itself is a challenge because it's very far off the coast from the main island and you don't stumble upon it and when you get there and you start the challenge, you can exit it anytime and it's not gonna affect your main story quest. You can just leave it and go back some other time when you're up for the challenge. So it's completely optional. And the way that they designed that island is actually it has the same um it has the same concept as the Yiga clan base stealth segment in that when you enter this island, there's going to be a very short cutscene where it tells you that to complete the challenge of the island, you will have to use whatever natural things you have in you to uh, survive the island. So the island's going to magically strip off all of your equipment, all of your armor, and all of your weapons. And then we'll ask you to collect three objects while also having to survive, which is very hard when it comes to Wrath of the Wild. You don't have any weapons or you don't have any armor. It makes you very vulnerable to the enemies around that island but the 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 great part about this segment is that it's um sort of complementing or supplementing the idea of the game wherein you have to be creative in solving problems and you have to use the gadgets that you have with you to creatively solve uh problems in the game uh, it it tells you that you don't really need to solve the um you don't have to fight the enemies always with your sword and with your shield. You can use the environment around you. And this island doubles down on that concept. So to be able to clear off this island, you will have to use the four gadgets that Link has. So one example that really stuck to me is that there's a there's a bonfire there. And then you have a bunch of bokoblins around it. And normally, Link would have no problem beating these guys when he has his sword in hand. But again... You strip away of all equipment here and you'll have to beat them without using any weapons. You only have your gadget with you. So what do you do? You look around your environment and see what you can use to beat these guys. And you see a cliff right beside this bonfire. And you see on top of this cliff, there's a big boulder. And viola! You can uh, come up with a solution immediately with that. You can use the magnesis. Uh, tool you have the magnesis gadget you have to have the boulder roll through the uh, roll down the cliff and hit these bokoblins and take care of them without even using weapons and in the middle of that bonfire you'll be able to get one of those objects if i'm not mistaken 
And so you were able to solve a problem that you would usually just use your sword and shield with, with a very genuine and very creative solution. And when you leave this island, you take that experience with you and you see things differently when you go, when you go back to the main island and you see the same situation elsewhere. But now your instinct isn't always just use your sword and shield to beat the Bokoblitz. You will start looking at the environment and look for other solutions aside from direct conflict. So I think um, you can deviate from the gameplay every now and then, sure, but you shouldn't ever move away from from the ideals or from the topics and concepts that the game really wants to drive into you. So you have to work on the strengths of the game that you have and double down on them when you're going to be uh, implementing shifts in gameplay like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Additionally, I have like two examples just to end this ro- railroaded sections part of our podcast episode today. So they're both uh, Sony first-party titles. So I feel like the big contrast between them is like the subtlety in which they do this. So first off, let's start with a not so subtle example, which is Spider-Man, the the latest Marvel Spider-Man. Uh, it has sections where you play as MJ and all you can do is basically stealth around and hide. So it's a, like a really jarring uh, break from the usual gameplay because you have none of the Spidey powers. MJ cannot fight. So all you're, all you can really do is sneak around and listen to exposition being told to you like in the environment. I feel like it, it, they couldn't think of a more elegant solution to implement exposition. So they did they just like kind of shoehorned in a stealth section in there so you can listen to enemies talk about what they're planning to do. And then in Last of Us 2 uh, as a contrast it was less subtle because I didn't think I actually this is a mechanic that I didn't think would like be implemented. So I uh, there's this really big infested hotel level and you play as Ellie. So Her kit is more of like smarter play, more stealth oriented. So she has traps and stuff. So I was trying to be smart, and then I like went into a room and I saw like, oh, there's two doors in this room. So what I'll do is I'll set up traps near the doors and then make a lot of noise to draw the zombies to me, because that usually works in every other level. But so I like set up an entire string of traps leading to the door, and then I tried to like throw bottles and stuff to like start the zombie horde going into the door and then prepared my shotgun to shoot them. <laughs> What I didn't know was the zombies actually didn't spawn until Ellie like goes out of that room and then walks sort of uh, like quite a ways out. So it, it's, it ruined all my plans and I spent all my <laughs> resources on that without the zombies ever actually moving towards me <laughs> so it's like oh my god so it was actually a forced hallway section that i didn't have any choice of so oh my god everyone praises the ai in this game but like i was really disappointed when my plan didn't work so yeah so that's it for me and railroaded sections uh we'll move on now to like bad technical aspects making artificial difficulty for us So the wait, guys wait. have an. Oh, okay, go ahead. Sorry, before we move on to the next one. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I just want to end it all by saying, end that section by saying that 
it's not wrong to have breaks in gameplay that are different. I just want to reinforce what Newt said earlier. It's not wrong to have breaks in gameplay that might deviate from, you know, the core gameplay, but it's hard to do it right. And there's so many games that have done it wrong, like the ones that we mentioned. I feel like breaks in gameplay are there to even even in sections where the, you know the player is supposed to feel powerless or like you're supposed to take away power from the player, there are still better ways to implement them. Uh and there are ways to make it so that you know, you, you don't want to make the sections too long and drawn out that when the player finally gets their power back, it's not a sense of, you know, they, they don't feel any sense of strength. They don't feel any sense of regaining all of these abilities. Instead, they just feel like, whoo, finally, that section's over. You know, like there's a difference in breaking gameplay to reinforce uh, the core gameplay that you have and just breaking gameplay and then ruining the experience and the immersion that players have. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all I have to say. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just want to add again. Uh, also, want to reiterate that if there are devs listening here, please don't force us to change the game that we're playing. We that that we paid for to play. Um, one good example here is if you're going to uh, change things up a little, please make them as you know optional or limited time events. You know, games like Genshin Impact is good at this. They would like to introduce new concepts. Like there was this recent event that they made you play ping pong or table tennis with other people and it was just optional you didn't have to do it if you did like doing these side side activities so i think the the point of breaking the gameplay or changing the gameplay up a little is to spice things up and to you know uh give you a short break away from what you were doing all this time so that you can keep things fresh So if if that's the concept that you're going for, make them optional so that the players can have the decision or decision whether or not they want to partake in deep into these kinds of activities that they never actually asked for or paid for. Because you know you, you gotta respect the 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 players playing this. They paid for a specific kind of experience that they're looking forward to that you actually marketed for. So give them what they ask for, and you know if there's anything like if you have desserts or side dishes to offer. Make it optional. Don't don't force it down our mouths. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, let's go back to bad technical aspects. Uh, I'll start again. So, my example for this is when they add platforming sections to games that clearly do not have any platforming coded into them properly. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> so. My example for this is Dragon Age Inquisition. I know, right? You can't, I can't even jump properly in this game. Oh my god! So there's this side quest where you need to collect a whole lot of shards. They're scattered all over the map, in almost every map of the game. And then, at the, if you collect enough, you like unlock certain chambers of this small dungeon thing that gives you a lot of loot. So it's totally a side quest, yes. But there are so many shards and they always show up on their map. And they're like in the worst possible places for them to be. Some of them are like really high up and you have to climb or you have to like make precise jumps and stuff in a game that is clearly not designed for you to be moving precisely in any direction. So it's it was such a pain and I never finished that side quest, honestly. There was actually a similar section that I just remembered from uh, Borderlands 2. I think it was specifically from the Tiny Tina DLC, the one where they're kind of playing in this fantasy world. Uh, and uh, there's this section. So it's, it's, it's a looter shooter. Um, you go around, you shoot enemies, you collect loot, rinse and repeat. Sometimes you fight bosses with mechanics. But there's also a lot of 
uh, there's a lot of open space of you just traversing terrain because even if there are lots of fast travel points in the game, some of them are kind of far apart. But there's this one section in uh, in the DLC where they had a platforming uh, platforming part where there are these moving platforms that would crush you against the ceiling or against the floor if you weren't in the right position. And it was just annoying because the movement of Borderlands does not feel very good. It's very floaty. You're, you're on a planet that has different gravity than Earth. You don't exactly know how big your player model or hitbox is because you're in first person and they're expecting you to do some kind of precise movement between these crusher platforms. Like there, there's even guides on YouTube on how to get it done in one go so you don't die because you lose money when you die. And there's, like, I was looking through the comment section earlier and it's like, oh, I, I guess I wasn't the only one who was having trouble with this. And I, I thought it was just me. Like maybe I was a bit too nitpicky with how I wanted my platformers to feel, but apparently you know, this forced platforming section in Borderlands 2 wasn't just my problem. A lot of people had issues with it. So I just and, want to, uh, like, um, a quick note that since we're talking about Borderlands, which is an FPS game, suddenly becoming platforming, it's kind of like the railroaded section as well. But the highlight here is how the control scheme of uh, Borderlands 2 actually makes it impossible to play it as a platformer. And not just the control scheme, like I think that the physics engine doesn't lend to that very well either. Like it, it just doesn't feel mechanically and technically ready to be a platformer at all. And that that, that brings me to another example of that. Um, the Witcher 3, uh, I love it to death, but if you guys have ever tried swimming in The Witcher 3, it's not a very pleasant experience. The controls feel wonky, you can't use your weaponry, you can't use your magic. The only thing you can use is Geralt's uh, dinky little crossbow. And the worst part is that there's sections in the game where, not even just from side quests, but one of the most notable ones for me from a side quest was when I was trying to get one of the pieces of the Witcher school gear. I don't remember exactly if it was the wolf or the cat school, but one of them is in the middle of a lake underwater. And, you know, you, you have to swim over to the center of the lake, which is already a chore. And then you have to go underwater. And the controls, under, the controls while you're underwater, it felt like it was just added as an afterthought, the ability to actually go underwater. And then while you're down there, you're still going to be attacked by enemies. And the only thing you can fend, you can use to fend for yourself is a crossbow, which you rarely use in your normal combat loop. It's more of just like a miscellaneous weapon that you have if you want to pick off a target before combat begins. Because, you know, there's no real stealth options in The Witcher. And, you know, they, they you get forced into some there's some parts in the main story or in major side quests where you kind of get forced into these sections where you dive underwater and you have to fight off some drowners using just that crossbow and it really to me it just felt like the swimming in the witcher was just kind of tacked on and it really didn't lead lend to a good experience it's really funny right because in real life you, you never use a crossbow underwater and in the witcher the only time you use a crossbow is when you're underwater <laughs> it's really yeah. funny this is very very uh odd thing in the witcher but i mean sometimes the technical limitations of a game or the way that they're specifically designed to not be the smoothest experience ever can actually add to your experience uh i guess similarly in some ways to like the resident evil tank controls uh on one, on one hand you know it was a product of its time and that was a technical limitation but what if it was deliberate that the technical design was like that and uh, some people, well, not me, but <laughs> people have uh, problems with the pacing and the animation locks and the movement that you experience in, again, the Dark Souls trilogy, which we alluded to, we talked about a lot earlier. 
um, because of how you know a lot of the weapons lock you into very long animations, or they have really slow windups, or you can't cancel yourself out of a lot of these animations. It's, it feels kind of clunky for some people. Uh, also, I suppose like the movement when you're wearing heavy armor or the rolling and how it changes depending on how heavy your armor is, and you know just the general pacing and the the the, the movement of combat. And like, I I honestly don't see it as that big of a problem because it it felt very deliberate. the 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 kind of pacing of combat and the kind of precision that FromSoft wanted out of the Dark Souls or the Soulsborne series uh, is only possible because of these quote-unquote clunky you know controls and animations. So, you know, I, I don't see it as a downside. I feel like in this case, it was used to great effect to really force you to become more careful or become more precise. Like, you can't just hack and slash your way or button mash your way through through a Dark Souls game, through a Soulsborne game, unlike you would be able to in, the, in an actual hack and slash, like let's say Devil May Cry or Bayonetta, maybe Nier. I mean, Nier has a bunch of uh, bullet hell sections and uh, those might be a little bit difficult to get into if you're not used to the movement controls. But yeah, you, you, for the most part, uh, hack and slash games of that type, like they, you'll still be able to play the game just by you know button mashing, even if you might not necessarily get a good score in Bayonetta for example or you might not be able to hear the background music in Devil May Cry but you guys get what I mean right? Yeah. It's like there's a difference from when you do it right and you do it intentionally by making you know the movement and the attacks and the animations long and quote unquote clunky. Kind of tangent but I also want to comment that you know that it's deliberate for Dark Souls uh, because when other Souls likes the, the, the less successful Souls likes try to implement the same clunky control scheme and they fail miserably because they don't exactly know why it's clunky right uh, dark souls really was designed to be clunky and the world or the gameplay and the world the enemies were designed with that in mind and we try to just copy paste it into another game just so that you can say that you're oh i, I have the same control scheme as dark souls you must like this but no if you're going to design a game with bad controls or you know uh clunky controls uh deliberately it has to fit the, the world around the, the character so you know that it's a you know good technical aspect or good limited technical aspect if it really fits the world around that kind of limitations Alrighty, so I guess we're moving on to our last type of artificial difficulty that we'll be discussing today, which is game time padding. I think Q has a a personal experience that he wants to share. A a rant? (laughs) (laughs) So if you guys ever played the uh, critically... (laughs) I'm kidding. So in in FF14's third expansion, well, actually starting its second first expansion heaven's word they have these things called aether currents uh the maps in ff14's world the overworld are large and they're very sprawling and uh normally you just have to walk through them or use a mount it can be kind of slow to traverse from one area to another but they added the feature of being able to fly which is significantly faster but in order to unlock flying you have to go around the map and collect what are called aether currents and uh, there's this one map one particularly large map in the stormblood expansion of ff14 called the locks and uh, what I why I consider game time padding is because there are two major points of interest in the locks in like the entrance and one on the far northeastern corner, and uh, 
most of the story and all the quests revolve around these areas. And you kind of just have to walk back and forth between these areas really, really excruciatingly slowly. And it, for me, it felt like it was for no reason at all because I didn't have to fight any of the overworld mobs. I didn't have to participate in any of the overworld fates because there was not really any incentive to do it. The amount of XP that they gave was minuscule and the, the drops that they gave you could just buy elsewhere or just earn elsewhere. And if I wanted to collect the Aether Currents, which would allow me to fly, one of them, one particular one, was so far off on the map and you never went there for whatever reason throughout the entire main story or any of the major side quests that unlocked things. So I had to deliberately spend like, it felt like half an hour, it was probably far less than that, but it felt like half an hour of walking across this map to get to that single Aether Current that would allow me to fly in the map. And by the time I had the ability to fly, I didn't need to go to that map anymore because that part of the story was already done. So I really just felt like, you know, if if I didn't want to fly, I felt I really felt like I was just wasting my time. And, you know, that, that to me is what game time padding is. Like, they just really want to have you playing the game longer to have you engaged longer, even if I wasn't engaged for that. I was doing other things while holding the W key. <laughs> yeah, it was it was not a very good experience. And there's a lot of games that do these sort of game time padding things. Yeah. Oh, on that specific instance of the Aethercurrents, I personally got myself a, a friend to drive me around because they were I, super tedious. I, oh my I God. actually don't know why I didn't do that. I didn't think <laughs> of that. I should have just done that. Yeah. I'm glad they fixed that in Shadowbringers, though. They actually put quests in the Aethercurrents, and the Aethercurrents are finally not all the way over in Narnia. <laughs> yeah, actually, the, the Aether Currents and Shadowbringers are like wherever the main quests lead. You usually find them just around that general vicinity. So that was a big quality of life improvement. Yeah, and they, they actually have like stories about uh, like unlocking them is tied to stories about the area too. So at least you get to know the world a bit more <laughs> instead of just wandering around randomly. So yeah. on the topic of game time padding, I also want to talk about Ghost of Tsushima. So, <laughs> I feel like th- this uh, regarding difficulty, this game handles it really well because first off, it uh, when you increase the difficulty, it actually doesn't make the enemy sponges. Like the lethal mode is actually both of you, you and your enemy will both die in like one or two hits. So, <laughs> it's never the HP sponge. It just makes the enemies smarter. Which is a really fun thing. But when it comes to padding, I feel like this game like really hits the sweet spot between allowing optional content and the main story being just the right amount of length. Like you can finish this game in less than 30 hours. And that's like really remarkable for an open world game. So I feel like it's one of the games that really respects people's time. So yeah. I you feel mentioned- like Sorry, you mentioned earlier uh, the, the way that it changes its difficulty doesn't include HP sponges. HP sponges are something we see a lot in RPGs. Like, I don't have as much experience as the two of you in JRPGs. So, wh- what do you have to say about that sort of like, you know, HP sponge thing where when you up the difficulty, uh, usually it just ends up being monsters hit harder and bosses have like 30 times the HP they normally would? I feel like there's a good way and a bad way to like implement hp sponges okay for me i kind of like usually grind when i go through a jrpg so by the time i get to a boss it's just the hp sponge just makes the fight longer instead of 
actually make me think about oh my man is running out i need more potions and stuff because usually you have like so much of them that you will never run out so i feel like uh jrpgs need to find a slightly better way to implement hp sponging or at least make it more engaging instead of just making my fight long like it just adds more turns for me to press normal attack so <laughs> Yeah. There are also some cases in JRPGs where bullet sponge, uh, sorry, uh, the HP sponge bosses are very unforgiving. Like um, the way it happens in JRPGs, you have to be, um, especially if you're just at the right level to face this boss. Like if you didn't grind like Cal did, and you <laughs> you arrived in that boss fight at just the right level. You will have to be very deliberate in the in the choices you make uh, on what moves you do on on when, and what happens is you just go into a loop of healing and attacking and then healing and attacking and then restoring your mana, and if you just miss one shot or one step of that, even though you've been doing it correctly for like forty minutes, the boss will just one shot you with just with with an attack that will. Uh, Obliterate your team just because you forgot one step of that loop. Just because you've been doing the same tedious thing for forty minutes and you forgot one step, and then you'll have to do it all over again, because, yeah, y- y- because because you didn't get to beat the boss. You'll have to start again at the very start. You'll have to spend forty more minutes of the same grind of the same tedious loop of attacking, of healing, and restoring your mana. And it's very frustrating when when that happens to you. It happened to me a lot of times because you know I lose focus. I, I lose focus sometimes when I play JRPGs and get obliterated somehow. Hmm. But I guess there are some examples of you know good game time padding, and I, I think maybe the open world genre as a whole, when done well, is kind of a, a good example of that. Like, um, what's a good example for that? I guess Skyrim would be a really good example. Yeah, well, barring all of the fetch quests, but yeah, Skyrim's yeah, a good well, example. Because in Skyrim, right, sometimes, well, a lot of the time, most of your quests might be getting just, you know, your main quest will have you go point A to point B, talk to this guy, fight this thing, clear out this dungeon, kill this jogger. But <laughs> I feel like so much of my gameplay didn't actually come from the main story at all. Like, I remember finishing up to, you know, the Greybeards. I, I made it up to High Hrothgar. I got my first set of powers, and then I was told to go somewhere else. I don't exactly remember where, but then I got lost. And by the time I realized it, I hadn't been doing any main story quests, and by the time I went back to you know continue on my main story quest, I was already a member of the thieves guild. I was like the head of the dark brotherhood, or maybe in another save, I was a werewolf with the companions, and it felt like like none of that was necessary. None of that was the main quest, but I just kept getting lost in it because there were so many interesting things to do from point A to point B, and I, I feel like that's game time padding done right, where like you know there's there's these, the time you spent traversing or doing menial things actually has other engaging things, you know, hidden in 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 the little details of it. If you actually just pay attention and take a look. Yeah. Okay, so I think. Well, wait. Has yeah, yeah, I, I do have something to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I just wanted to comment how uh, things that some people might consider game padding they actually work if and only if these are actually value adding and makes the world feel more you know more inhabited it feels more dense 
uh, as long as these side quests that you stumble upon actually make sense in the context of the world and if they do add to the lore and to the feel of the game you know the the things that uh Kiyu mentioned earlier joining the thieves guild uh becoming a member of whatever guild uh, in skyrim all of those are very fleshed out side quests that you absolutely don't have to do to finish the main quest but going through them you know stumbling upon them most of the time and going through them is always worth the effort and it's something that bethesda games weren't able to replicate in in their recent games and i do hope that elder scrolls 6 would go back to those times that all of the quests that you do actually mean something not that we actually know anything about the elder scrolls 6 yet yeah, we just know that they're they're at least on it. But yeah, who knows when that will come we, out. We at least know they have a cinematic trailer. <laughs> yeah. It only shows us the title. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think... Have we talked about Ghost, Ghost of Tsushima? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah well, because uh, I just remembered how uh, excited I'm about I, I am about this game. I haven't played it yet, but a lot of people Please have been saying it. how uh, you don't have a minimap in the game, right? You don't have a minimap. Nope. But you, you you just keep on stumbling upon things in the game that will, you know, uh, make you do stuff. And every bit of it is worth your time exploring. And it actually yes. rewards you not fast traveling at all. You just walk around and you discover all of these cool stuff. All of these yep. game padding methods are you know good and um it really makes the world feel more alive more more uh deeper immersive. and more immersive yeah yep. it makes it it makes you also feel all of the effort that the devs put into the game like they they've thought about this many stories to put into the game like every, some some sub quests or some side quests could actually become the the whole plot of a of another game sometimes that level yeah. of immersion and yeah just shout out to these devs who really put um all of their love all of their hearts into these games that they create yep uh go ahead yeah, i i just kind of realized that you know the, these four distinct categories that we kind of went through them i realized they're not actually so distinct <laughs> they all kind of intertwine with one another even if you know they, they can be they can be separated into uh, somewhat uh, more digestible parts. Like I, I don't know. I just, I just kind of realized how well all of these things intertwine with each other, and uh, you know, it, it just really opened up the discussion for me on adaptive difficulty and how difficulty ties in so much into not only gameplay but narrative and immersion and just the entire experience of the game. And I feel like we've just kind of been uh, approaching the concept of difficulty from a very surface level uh as you know as a community as a whole because of the way that a lot of uh games try to approach it yeah actually all of these difficulties that people uh players face in these games most of them were decided at the start like the devs have decided that it's going to be this hard these mechanics will affect your gameplay this way but there's also this kind of um, difficulty which Q already mentioned adaptive difficulty that actually well as the name suggests adapts to the playstyle of the person and actually really amazing technology how they can do this one good example for this is in um, in XCOM 
where whenever you play really well, you know, I I, I think I mentioned this in one of our previous yeah. uh, episodes. But if you are doing well in XCOM, even if it says 97% hit chance, sometimes the game will make you miss deliberately just to even out the the odds of the game. You know, uh, it, it makes really it sometimes though. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just sometimes. You know? uh, the the purpose the purpose of that is so that you wouldn't feel too comfortable all the time. You wouldn't feel too powerful. Like you're just team rolling through all of these aliens. The devs would sometimes throw a mon- monkey wrench on your progress and you know deliberately stumble you to get you back to the experience that they want you to have, which is always on your toes, thinking about your strategy every time, which I think is a very natural way to do it. You wouldn't notice it most of the time, um, <laughs> unless you know about it. You know, uh, <laughs> last time I talked about it. Here in this podcast, these two didn't know about it, so it's I'm very sorry for ruining XCOM for you forever. And okay. another game that will be imp- implementing adaptive uh, difficulty, which is still upcoming, is Death Loop. Not sure if you've heard about it. It's one of the last Bethesda-owned games, well, developed by Arkane Studios. That's going to be Sony exclusive because it's Sony exclusive even before Microsoft mm-hmm. bought Bethesda. But anyway, that's off tangent. In Death Loop, uh, the gameplay difficulty will adapt your performance in the game. Uh, so Death Loop is a first-person shooter, which has uh, its roots on Dishonored. So I think you will be uh, very uh, interested in this game. Death Loop is a yeah first-person shooter. So depending on how good you are in assassinating your targets in this game, the game will adjust its metrics. So if you're very good at shooting at people or not getting killed, it's going to increase the accuracy of your enemies. If you're killing opponents really fast, it's going to increase the HP of the enemies. Likewise, if you haven't been doing really well, you've been dying a lot, it's going to try to lower the accuracy of the enemies a bit so that you could get back to your groove, regain your 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 rhythm and be able to play the game again and enjoy the game so that at all times you will have um, you will have a healthy amount of challenge for you know how you are performing at every moment so it's always going to be balanced whenever you are you know even if you're very skilled the game will become harder and if you're having a bad day the game will understand that and it's going to be like okay we're gonna be going soft on you today because you're having a bad day and you're gonna let you enjoy the game more so yeah that's adaptive um adaptive difficulty for you i'm not sure if the others have a uh, example in their mind do you have any games that you know has adaptive difficulty mm. I don't the think I have anything I... specific right now. Sorry, was yeah. that Cal? The only one I've heard of is XCOM, but I feel like a strategy game that has adaptive elements would be really fun to play. But, well, strategy, grand strategy games usually have notoriously Bad AI. problematic yes. AI. <laughs> yeah. You can only get the real challenge if you go into multiplayer, but that's going to be an entirely different topic, you know? Something that... maybe. We should probably, episode. yeah, in a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> teaser? Is this a teaser? Is this an Easter egg? Mm. Who knows? Mm, nobody knows. <laughs> <Not us. laughs> we don't know yet. All right. We'll find out soon. 
So I guess that's it for us today. Thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, this has been Cal. And this has been Newt. And I'm Q. Uh, see y'all uh, next episode.